Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and good afternoon. You're listening to Queer Talk. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. Queer Talk is part of the LGBT Hero Awards Talk Radio. Today is April 4, 2016. And today's episode is Queer Talk, Raising Zoe by documentary filmmaker Dante Alencastre. Help me welcome Dante. Dante, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hi, Dante. Welcome to the show. So let me share with our audiences that Raising Zoe is a documentary that depicts an eventful year in the life of transgender 13-year-old Zoe Luna, her mom, Ophelia, and her older sister, Letty. How long have you been working on this film? Well, I had the, the distinct pleasure of meeting uh, Zoe and Ophelia in 2013, they were invited to the premiere of my transmissible film about Bambi Salcedo. Actually, they were the guests of Bambi Salcedo. And at the time, I had no idea that I was going to be working on a film about them. But um, so through our interactions, I decided that uh, they were just a wonderful family and I wanted to know more about them. And so I think I shot the first interview in their uh, backyard. I think it was Jan, uh, June of 23rd, 2014. Yeah, uh, Zoe was about to turn 13, I remember. And when I, Zoe, when I got Zoe's to, close to oh, becoming 15 today, right? Right. She's, she's going to be 15 this year, yeah. So basically, I, um, I was invited to their, her third birthday and I found out that her birthday was the same day as mine July 23rd and oh, I didn't know this yeah and also that they as soon as I walked into their house they were screaming like Dante get out of there get out of there and it's because they're a little <laughs> they have a little I think it's a chihuahua that in the name of the dog is Dante so I thought oh my god <laughs> I think some I think the universe is telling me that I should be interested in this family and I should make it my next project because I was actually uh, starting to work on an, another project at the time. Well, I wanted to give listeners a little bit of background about who you are. Uh, I know that you spoke a little bit about your involvement with uh, Trans Visible, the Bambi Salcedo story. Uh, and that's a, that's a 
documentary that follows the life of trans activist Bambi Salcedo. She's also an ex-co-worker of mine. We used to work together at, at uh, Children's Hospital, and, and I've got to know her professionally as well as intimately. She's a you know, such a hard worker. Um, how did you become involved in film? You know, is this your background? Is this something that you sort of fell into? Can you give our listeners a little background about how it is that you have now developed this body of work? Uh, well, I mean, I've been a storyteller all my life. Uh, I left my uh, pre-med studies way back in the early 80s and I took my first playwriting class and I started doing theater and I never looked back. So my life has always been about telling other people's stories, um, bringing, you know, either fictional or non-fictional stories to life. So first I started with theater. I did a lot of theater in New York for about 15 years. Then I did some schooling in Europe. Then I came back. And I started doing my little short films in New York. And then um, due to personal reasons, I wound up living in the Netherlands when I took my first uh, editing and video making courses. Uh, I was part of a team that created a show called um, Gay Boulevard. And uh, we basically uh, just uh, covered the entertainment, arts, and cultural nightlife of Amsterdam. And that's mm. when I got a taste of, of doing a little bit of documentary. I, I was the one actually really interested in, like, the like day-to-day real-life stories. I was not into the celebrities and opening nights and parties and stuff like that, which was the core of our show. And, you know, I started talking to Muslim kids that were gay at the time and talking to immigrants. And uh, when I came back to the States, um, I went to my... I'm from Peru, so I went to my country, and I met a bunch of activists, and I, I always had a camera. My mom bought me a camera when I was 18, uh, Super 8 camera, and so I, at the time I had a little handicap, and I told the people that I was meeting if they wanted to be interviewed. Uh, and most of the gay men that I met did not want to be on camera, and the only people I found were these trans women from Peru Mm -hmm. and I had a great time and I brought that film back to LA. Uh, I, by coincidence, I met somebody from Outfest, uh, Kim Yutani, the programmer at the time, told me I should turn my uh, my footage into a film, which became my first documentary about the trans women activists in Peru that was called En El Fuego, which was like, you know, it just went all over the world. I won awards, and I just said, I, I think I found my niche. This is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. And so you worked with also uh, John Johnson and Jesse Parsons in that film. Yes. Jesse is a dear friend of mine, and I met him actually at Frameline because the film was shown at Frameline, and he was my host. And I spent the whole 10 days of the festival with him, and he's always been a very big supporter of all my films. And he does sound, and he knows everybody in San Francisco. So, yeah. Well, I know that you're known as an advocate for equal rights globally. 
and that you help create change through media awareness of Latino and trans people around the world. And this is what you were just talking about. Um, I'm interested in knowing from you, seeing that, you know, you've been out in the community uh, telling stories, telling personal stories for some time now. Have the stories changed? Um, are, is there a difference between uh, the characters or the subjects you followed in your earlier days versus, you know, some of the characters and stories you follow today? Well, I mean, if I, I've been asked a similar question before, and the through line that I found, especially from my documentary work, which has been the one I've been focused in the last nine years, it's been that's always the, um, the focus is on a very strong woman. You know, it could be trans or cisgender. There's always a really strong woman in it. And I, of course, I thought, wow, where did that come from? And it comes from my mother. You know, my mother was a single uh, mom, and um, she brought me here when I was 13. Just her and me, and she worked really hard which Ophelia reminds me so much of her, and brought the, the entire family out of Peru. Because at the time, there was like, you know, there was the rumors they were going to turn into the next Cuba. I'm talking this is like late 70s, 80s. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any family left in Peru, but all my family emigrated because of my mom. And I became who I am today because of her. She put me through an Ivy League school, and she always supported me and loved me the same way that Ophelia loves us always, and had the same dreams and hopes for her the way my mom had for me. So there is a direct connection in all my work that the, cent- the center protagonist, centerpiece, is always a strong, fierce, um, you know, non-nonsense woman. You know, like going back to the trans women in Peru, Rubanti Salcedo, her friends, and now Ophelia. And so take, take us through the process of finding funding for your projects. What does that look like? Um, I, I know that you have a GoFundMe, uh, particularly for raising Zoe, and we have attached a link to this episode and also on our website, which is lgbthewards.com. We had uh, Zoe and Ophelia as our guests earlier um, in the week. And or, or last week, I should say, and and we also were talking about you know you and and uh, they spoke very highly of you and it, clearly you've become a member of their family. Um, so can you speak to us? I know that you know uh, intentions can be great, but if there's no funding, how do you how do you put out a film? Well, I'm very honored that they talked to me that about me that way because I feel they're my family as well. And I become so attached to them um, and to their family uh, that I'm, I'm so honored really to be considered as part of the family. In terms of, you know, I mean, every project that I've done has been a different situation with funding. It's, of course, it's always not enough. Uh, I was just recalling today that my first film, actually, my mom had to cash in her savings so I could make that Peruvian film that I mentioned earlier uh, so I could pay my editors to finish it. Um, you know, with Bambi, was basically um, a meeting with uh, her friend Roland Palencia and doing a lot of crowdfunding and house parties 
So it was really a community effort. The community wanted to see that film made, and it was made, uh, of course, very, very cheaply, but I thought the story needed to be told at that time. This is before Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner and any of the transmissibility that we have now. Uh, with Zoe I wanted, and Ophelia, I wanted to do a different. thought I had in, enough credentials, enough credits, that I could just go the grant route. And I was lucky enough to get uh, initial funding to film, uh, but then the grants, you know, as you know, they're, they're a crapshoot. And sometimes they come through and sometimes they don't. So that's why I'm doing the, went back to my fallback, is the, doing the crowdfunding and hoping that the community will see this as a film that needs to be made. But I always feel that my films are like a grass, grassroots because they're like my passion projects and I'm hoping that the people feel the same way when they see it. But um, it's, it's just the making of them, you know, because it becomes a really hardship uh, of trying to uh, talk professional, like I have a professional editor who I sometimes can't pay because I don't have enough money to do that. Even my own livelihood is, you know, linked to how much money I can raise. So I find it like um, the community is always welcoming of the project when it's done, but when we really need support it before it's done. So the more projects can be get done, you know, which are done, you know, for the community, from the community, to benefit the community. And I still raising Zoe as being one of the projects that are like that. I'm not looking for, you know, throwing it out in the cyber world without having an, a, a support. And I'm, I'm talking to a lot of nonprofits right now who are really interested in helping it, because usually they want to help after the film is done. You know? So the struggles and everything that happens before the film is made, sometimes it's not as supportive as it, be, as it can be. I think, you know, we, you mentioned this earlier. You were talking a little bit about Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner and sort of this celebrity that's now become uh, visible, uh, mildly visible in the community in terms of having uh, a few trans voices uh, represented in more mainstream television. Uh, this documentary is far from that. I, I, I could say that because I've seen uh, the making of the documentary has been uh, present in some of the filming. And what I could definitely tell our audience is that there definitely is a grassroots um, feel to this. And not only that, the story that's being told is that of a 13-year-old um, young lady. And so the things that you see her experiencing day to day are not that of a celebrity status. And, and what you see is a student um, who is, you know, performing in school and, you know, um, just having moments with her mother, moments with her sister. And that includes, you know, being at home and, and really seeing the way that uh, Ophelia's love really holds this family together. Um, so I want to make sure that the audience knows that this isn't, you know, a film that, that you started working on, you know, six months ago and that all of a sudden you're, you're trying to put this together. But this has definitely been uh, a labor of love 
And it's been a labor of love, like you said, going on a few years now. So the, the crowdfunding is definitely important. Um, I want to make sure that I refer our audience to the donation page or donation link on this episode. It's at the bottom of the page. You can donate $5. I think what's important about donating is that, you know, it can be in small amounts. I think some folks are intimidated sometimes to donate because it's sort of, there's this idea sometimes, and I've seen this time and time again, um, that you need to have $50 available, $100, and it has to be extra money lying around. And that's far from the truth. I think that if there are larger numbers donating smaller amounts, you're going to have a much better outcome than having a few handful of people donating you know, a few larger bills. And, and, and I just want to make sure that our audience knows that you know, this has definitely been a labor of love, and it's a story that I think it's important to be told, and I think it's important that it gets out there so that it helps the next generation have visibility of um, a family like this. And I think what's fantastic about this is that it also follows a Latino family, you know, and I think oftentimes our stories get left out um, in terms of, you know, acknowledging that we are part of the community, community that we are part of this uh, society, that the U.S. is not just made up of one group of people, but, you know, we're part of this um, the social group ourselves. And so I know that part of the funds are also going to be uh, used to help with translation. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, my vision for the film is to reach out to the rural communities of where their monolingual parents who are dealing with the same thing that uh, Ophelia dealt with. I um, also want to take the film to Latin America um, uh, through my uh, partnership with the uh, Ace Healthcare Foundation. We need to bring the film. I think it's so necessary because even the terminology is, um, is not there. It's, it's missing. And I know family units coming from Peru is the most important thing. So I think the film would be actually an eye-opening. I, I, I suppose it will be controversial because of some of the things that happened to Zoe in the film. But I think it's a necessary. It's totally necessary to, to really empty the, the stakes for what, what it's like to be uh, a parent of a child who's transgender, nonconforming, gender variant, and, and bring them up to date. Because I, I feel in our countries is lacking, you know. And um, the other thing I also want to say about the filming of Raising Zoe you can see actually in the film how Zoe blossoms from that 13-year-old little girl that I met to the 14-year-old girl that ends the film uh, surrounded by her friends. So you can really see, which is very rare to see in a documentary, somebody just changed so radically. I mean, physically, mentally, as a leader, her speeches, her confidence, and her mother learning from her just as much. So... I think it's, and it's not because it's my film. It's, I, I just feel like blessed to have been able to witness this. You know? And I'm sure Zoe is going to go places that we can not imagine. And I want also to tell to all the parents that this is a love letter to all the single moms 
could have worked hard to get their kids, whatever they are, you know, whether they're from the LGBTQ rainbow or not, that they love them and support them and what can happen from that, you know. I am remembering a moment that we had um, with the LGBT Hero Awards back in 2014. And, you know, at the time um, we were, our efforts were to make the LGBT Hero Awards bilingual. Uh, So there were components of it that were bilingual. At the end, I would say that it was vastly, a vast Spanish-speaking experience. And and I think, you know, you were touching on this, that in terms of of the word transgender or even some of the, the transgender identity that's used in, in um, in English, I, I guess the, the only thing I can express is English, you know, didn't necessarily translate the same in Spanish. And, and, and it, felt as though there was a moment of having to pause to kind of gauge what what is what is that experience like from the monolingual experience the monolingual spanish i should say and you know i know that we had a bit of an issue with uh, zoe's presentation in terms of uh how she was being addressed in spanish was very different than the way she was addressed in the English. And, and we had to have a, a big discussion about that because um, we, w- I think each other, I would say uh, on both ends of the the planning side, we were unaware of the differences between even the word transgender in English and the lack of word of transgender. Well, not that there's a lack of word in in Spanish, but I think, you know, the word that was being used uh, um, by some of the team members was, was not the correct word. And do you remember that? Oh, definitely. Like it happened yesterday (laughs) because Ophelia and I were, I think we were happy that, that uh, Zoe was not allowed to come into the arena because of the, the liquor laws and stuff like that, and we knew that she was not going to enjoy being in an all, almost all Spanish affair. But uh, we were, I, I, I was, Ophelia was appalled, and I was just appalled that that she was, you know, called what she was called. Uh, and I think it, it's not because the the language is not there, terminology is not there. I think there was a lack of interest and education from the part of whoever wrote that script. To find out what would be, you know, uh, sensitive and respectful way of addressing one of the honorees because that's what what Zoe was. So, um, so there was a lack, and I think in all around, uh, and 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 there was a teachable moment that was lost, you know, because there was a, it was a huge audience, and and I think that moment was lost. But hopefully, we. I'm trying to redress that with, you know, with this film, definitely. Absolutely. And I think that's the importance of having this discussion is that, you know, this is a Latino story and Latinos, as Latinos, we come in several, you know, with several different experiences, including several forms of Spanish. And, you know, some of us speak Spanish, some of us don't. And, um, 
and I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that this is, a, you know, a, a Latino film being put out by a Latino about a Latino family and why that's important. And, and again, I think the um, I think it's an opportunity to really see the complexity of being Latino in this uh, in this country, and that you know there's this other layer of the story that that we could really spend a lot of time just focusing on. <laughs> uh, so it, it's a, it's a, it's an important film for many reasons. And I just want to make sure that folks, please, if you're able to contribute $5, don't hold back. This is something that we want out there. We definitely want and need to make sure that um, we are, we're hearing and seeing our own stories out there. And if we wait for somebody else to tell our stories, it's never going to happen. So uh, this is the time to be proactive. Once again, the donation link is attached to, to this episode. And you can also go to LGBTHeroAwards.com if you're unable to find it here. Um, I know that you are also working on another film, uh, and that's Nally Queen. Can you tell us a little bit about Nally Queen? Sure, I'll be happy to. So that was the, the film I was working on after Transvisible, the Bambi Sotelo story. Um, I, I, um, I was contacted by uh, a friend of Jose. Jose was the, Jose Saria was the first openly gay man to run for office in 1961. He ran for city supervisor in San Francisco. He was Latino. Uh, he passed away at the ripe age of 90 two years ago. So I was invited actually to film his uh, state funeral because that's the only way I can describe it. I mean, it was uh, it was just a, a, the most sumptuous funeral I ever seen. Like, and I was so taken by, uh, I spoke to Jose actually a week before he passed, and he told me in Spanish that he didn't want people to forget him and his contributions to our community, and he wanted, he was an entertainer. He wanted me to make the film really entertaining. He was a female impersonator by profession, and he had run for office in 61 as just to show that anybody could run for office, and that was his you know, his patriotic duty of running, and he got 6,000 votes, meaning that there was actually a gay political, you know, movement there that about to begin. This is 61. I mean, think about that, you know. Yeah. And this is, uh, he really set the path for anybody, for anyone who came afterwards, including Harvey Milk, and he created, you know, pride and and family and just an amazing, amazing individual. And now the more I get into researching him, the more amazing he is. And I hope that we can bring that film soon. I mean, I'm still working with the producer, his dear friend, Joe Castell. And, but like I said, that was a big budgeted film. So I knew it was going to take a long, a lot of grants, a lot of investors to bring it in. So that's why at the time I thought, you know, I'd better just, you know, start looking for um, something that I can do that it's more, that I have more control over and it, was, it just speaks to me as much. And that's when I found 
and I met Zoe and Ophelia, and then Letty, the, the Zoe's older sister, and I was just, that's it, you know, this is my next baby, because I call myself my baby. <laughs> um, <So. laughs> I, I, you definitely have some uh, treasures um, in these stories, and I know that, you know, you were talking about Jose Sadia, and I was noticing that the story, like you said, really takes takes um, part after World War II in San Francisco. And what I find that interesting is that you have some footage from this time. So it's not it's not just you know somebody telling a story. There's actual footage that that shows what life looked like then. Um, how did you obtain that? Well, I mean, uh, actually, there's very little, like, video footage of, of those times. Um, but what I do have, and I, I think it's, it's a treasure trove, is that Joe, his friend, was able to interview Jose the last 25 years of his life. And so we have Jose telling his story about, you know, life in World War II, dressing up, you know, when he was 16, 17, uh, running for office and everything that he did back then, being the the, the big entertainer of the Black Cats, and this is the time where you know there were the beatniks and the civil rights movement, and and just being really the you know like the queen bee of San Francisco, and uh, and then founding the Imperial Court System, which is still a nonprofit that is grown like leaps and bounds. There are like 70 chapters around the country and then chapters in Canada and Mexico and they do uh, still do a lot of fundraising and that's part of Jose's legacy. Paul don't know, only scholars know really about Jose. I mean he's been mentioned in a lot of books but most Latinos don't even know. I've been to conferences of queer Latino activists that I've never heard of him which I thought I was, what a shame. I mean he should be taught in the pantheon with people like Bayer Rustin and Harvey Milk and and you know, and such. I, I think that's really my my goal for the for the film about Jose. You know, that are there any talks? Be, are there any what? talks about uh, having this film or any of your, your films um, be introduced through PBS? Oh uh, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Actually, I'm meeting with um, in New York with WNET. Uh, I talk about the film. Because we want to borrow some of the, they did a documentary called in 1961 actually called The Rejected. It was the first documentary that actually talked about homosexuality. Uh, of course, it was not in the most uh, positive light, but at least there were some homosexual activists in that film. And so I'm trying to get licensing for that. And the other thing I, I just want to say quickly about the film about Jose, and like with all my films, I always aim to make them resonant and relevant for today. Uh, in terms of raising Zoe, unfortunately, the resonance and, and, and timeliness of the film has to do with all the anti-transgender, you know, uh, initiatives all around the country. And I think mm-hmm. maybe raising Zoe will put a face into the issue that that might affect a child like Zoe in her own high school. And, um, and Jose, you know, just basically reclaiming history, but also giving 
gender variant and gender nonconforming and trans individuals a hero to emulate or to you know to continue his um, uh, gender variant uh, legacy. You know, I, I, as you were speaking about him, um, you're right. Uh, we should know who he is. We should know definitely more about Jose um, Saria. Is, is that how you say it, Saria? Yeah, Saria. Yeah, Saria. Okay, I just want to make sure I, I, I'm saying this right. And, you know, the truth is that the first time I heard of, of him was through you when we spoke about this film um, probably about a year ago. And since then, you know, I've seen a few things here and there. But I will be honest, the, th- the few things I have seen uh, put out have really been from you. And I think that it's going to be interesting to hopefully see this uh, story grow and develop and, and grow um, because he is a Latino civil rights pioneer. And we oftentimes, this is what I was referring to earlier, we oftentimes hope that someone else is going to tell our story, that we're going to be included, um, that Latino stories, Latino characters, Latino activists, Latino um, pioneers will be included in the storytelling of history in the U.S., but oftentimes we're not. And so I think, once again, I want to reference the importance of making sure that funding for films like, you know, Nally Queen and, and Raising Zoe um, take place because without this, it only makes it much more difficult for our stories to be put out and for, for there to be some form of representation. Uh, I, I'm guessing that these films also have, you know, an educational component that, you know, they could be used in classroom settings at some point, whether it's at a college level or high school level, um, is there a frame that, that of that, is there a, a sort of an educational frame to this? Oh, yeah. Well, what I, for both films, they have a very big uh, educational component, and I'm already uh, meeting up before even the films are done, uh, partnering, partnering up with uh, nonprofits or uh, companies that will help bring the film out into the college, university, agency circuit. Um, because I I believe that's where you know that's where they belong, and that's where they, it will it will cause more hearts and minds to be to be enlightened and to be celebrated. You know, I mean, these are stories. From Latinos by Latinos that need to be celebrated and embraced by the whole community. Well, Dante, I appreciate you taking the time to call in today, and you know to sit down and, and chat with us a little bit about raising Zoe. And I, you didn't know that I was going to bring up Nellie Queen, but I'm also glad that we had an opportunity to speak about Nellie Queen. Um, I, I would love to invite you to come back at some point to, to speak about Nellie Queen and, and update us um, with what is going on with Raising Zoe. For more information about Raising Zoe and this show, please visit lgbtheroawards.com. 
This has been Xavier Mejia for Queer Talk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Xavier, for the opportunity. Absolutely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.